He was writer-director. There are some directors who write, but Benton was a writer who directed. And I think his connection to the words and to the characters was most important. Filmmaker Robert Benton discovered his love of cinema and narrative from going to the movies three or four times per week with his father. Overcoming severe dyslexia at an early age, he eventually became a screenwriter, earning an Academy Award nomination for his debut screenplay, Bonnie and Clyde. Best known for the films he directed, Kramer vs. Kramer and Places in the Heart, Benton also wrote the musical O Calcutta and It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which became the basis for his screenplay, Superman, the Movie. In this episode, we'll sit down with picture editor Bob Ritano, ADR supervisor Michael Jacoby, and re-recording mixer Tom Fleischman, and talk with them about their collaborations with Benton. I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame, introducing you to the most influential and respected film professionals working in New York today as a celebration of New York's ongoing contribution to the global film community. The host for today's episode is Soundtrack. You can share this conversation through our website, bit.do slash framebyframe, or via Twitter at at postny. The currents of the 1960s, in cinematic form and in political substance, hit different artists in different ways. Robert Benton had been raised on stories of Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrows with a father who attended their funeral and was enamored by the French New Wave, and wrote Bonnie and Clyde initially for Francois Truffaut. Ultimately, the film became recognized for its revolutionary new sensibility and film grammar. Tom, Michael, and Bob started things off by talking about where they were in their careers at the time Bonnie and Clyde came out, and what the film represented to them individually and culturally. Tom Fleischman's mother, Dee Dee Allen, served as editor for the film. On my spring break in, in my sophomore year in high school, I worked for two weeks in my mom's cutting room on Bonnie and Clyde, making cinetabs and logging code numbers. So that was just at the time when all of that French New Wave was happening. You know, uh, it was big in the culture. Jean-Paul Belmondo and The Man and a Woman and... Uh, breathless. Breathless, yes. That was all around the same period. It was all happening at the same time. And I was very young at the time. But I remember just being impressed with that cultural feeling that was happening in the late 60s. You know, I mean, that was sort of the time when I made the decision that I want to be in this business. And those films, those, I mean, you know, those Truffaut and Godard, you know, those, those films were, were really influential to a lot of people at that time. So I'm not surprised that Benton was influenced by that, too. Yeah, the times, that you know, when you say the times, they were a changing right there, and that's when it was happening. You know, that's when we were going from the 50s to the 60s, and um, the Vietnam War was looming down on us very heavily. It was a time where there, there were riots in the streets. There was this opportunity to establish a nonconformity for the first time, you know, probably in the history of man that I know of, you know, that the beat movement seemed to be taking the first step and showing itself and saying, we are here, we are contenders. You guys are going to have to live with us, and so we're making our noise now. These were the same year when, you know, Monterey Pop and mm. Woodstock and, you know, Rolling Stone started publishing, and 
the Beatles uh, and John they're Lennon. They're almost dying out and, at that point. You know, yeah. There was a cultural revolution in this country at that time. We were coming out of the 50s, you know, Eisenhower years and Nixon years and Kennedy years into Vietnam and the hippies and women's liberation and, you know, everything was exploding. Uh, things were really changing fast. So yeah. Conventional cinema was at that point considered probably boring. You know, there were a lot of musicals that had been made. So, you know, this new wave of directors that came in were making films that... De Palma, Scorsese. A little little darker, a little bit realer. On their own, they were independent. Coppola. You know, the shot of of Clyde Barrow's head blowing off was a direct homage to the Kennedy assassination. I mean, that's that's what that... The end of that movie was about. You know, that that shot that... Yeah, they they were not being ruled by studios. It was not a homogenized product. It was like, this is my statement. This is what we're saying now. Live with it. And those were the best films. You look back on that era and look at the films that came out, That it's like, you know, any Beatles song that's playing now is still relevant. Bonnie and Clyde was, was kind of revolutionary in itself in in Hollywood because, you know, the studio hated it. Jack Warner wanted it shut down. He didn't want to release it. And, you know, Warren Beatty had to pay for uh, himself for, you know, to get it released. And, and there was a horrible review in the New York Times. Bosley Crowther panned it. And then suddenly it, <laughs> Pauline Kael wrote a good review. Right. And so, you know, everything turned, it became a, you know, a, a cult thing and, and became a hit. The thing that I saw when I saw Bonnie and Clyde, I think I was just starting out in the film business it was the thing that woke me up to editing. It's just like, whoa, that's oh, that's what you can do with film. I didn't I didn't know it was more than just a story. It was a way of telling a story. And it was more than just the words and the characters. There was some different dimension to it because I was just starting to wake up to the fact that this is a, an amazing creative process. I I see it as as a more than just like you know horrible violent you know it's like it was lyrical it it, it was well, it the was way like it was symphony. shot the slow motion yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before no but I understand what you're saying yeah something that Dee Dee Allen did in that film and it was the first time that it was done now there's what used to be called jump cuts which are run really not jump cuts the jump cuts when in in breathless is when you take the same shot and you jump from point a to point d without going through b and c it is not cutting it in fragments it is about jumping the action there's the scene in the cemetery and it isn't cut straightforwardly the way all films had been cut it was a montage of attitudes and of faces. And I hadn't seen that in a feature film. You'd seen it in experimental films, you'd seen it in 16-millimeter films, but you never saw it in a feature. And I don't know where that came out of, whether that was editor or director. It's probably both. But things were tried there that nobody had done before. And how did that affect you? It, 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 I mean, you, you couldn't take your eyes off of it because... They were going to do something extraordinary. The the shot on the car through the face. I mean, it you'd never seen that before. I mean, I, you hadn't actually. The shot looking down into into the where after they've been shot and and he uh, Gene Hackman's had his head blown open and they're in the car driving, getting away and there's this shot like looking down through the roof of the car into this chaotic scene that's happening. Michael J. Pollard is driving, I think, or, or 
Warren Beatty's driving and Estelle Parsons is screaming her head off and Gene Hackman is bleeding out and you know there's this 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 chaos and and I Didi used to say looking down into hell that, that's what that shot was it was like looking down into hell well the other things that that, that were done there there there's an unimportant scene where Faye Dunaway is sitting in a room and she gets up exits the room and goes down a flight of stairs simple he's arrived I'm not sure but she's eager to get there and Dee Dee told this story, and Arthur kept saying, I want it faster, I want it faster. And Dee Dee was saying, well, I, she, she only moves so fast, I've got to get her to the door. And she wasn't about to jump that. And what Dee Dee eventually did was a lot of cuts. So I think to get her out of the room, there are seven cuts, and to get her down the stairs, there are another seven. And what that did to energize the action, it made it faster. And you'd never been exposed to that. And that was the beginning of the liberation in editing. And and Dee Dee Allen was at the start of this. And Arthur, it was interesting when I asked her about that scene, she said, oh, that wasn't me, that was Arthur. And that's not true. It just isn't true. Because it's only the editor who would have thought of that. You know, Dee Dee, working with her as her assistant, always struck me that she was teaching herself as she was going along. So she may have created that sequence of getting to the door, but she was probably saying, you know, Arthur was saying this, but he, you know, so she she was teaching herself as she was teaching others. It's not like she knew when she did. She was experimenting, constantly experimenting. But I think that, um, you know, bringing it back to Benton, well, you, you can almost see his respect for um, humanity in, in Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, just, you know, the way he made those characters you know, human, you know, worse they were otherwise, you know, thugs and criminals. You know, he gave, he gave them heart. You can listen to a more in-depth conversation about Arthur Penn, the director of Bonnie and Clyde, in the first episode of season three with collaborators, music editor Susanna Parrish, picture editor Steve Rotter, Ron Roos, Jeffrey Wolf, and Bob Ritano, and sound editor Mark Lau. Here, Bob Ritano offers his thoughts on how Bonnie and Clyde broke conventions on multiple levels. One of the most influential books of the 60s was by Marshall McLuhan. And the, the phrase that came out of his writing was, the medium is the message. That is, it is not what's on television, it's television itself is the message. And I think that Bonnie and Clyde and other films that followed, the medium was part of the message there, and it was not merely the content of the film. It was not merely the story. It was also the medium. That film couldn't exist on television. That film doesn't exist on paper. I mean, it just isn't. It's a movie, and it can only be a movie, as Mm -hmm. opposed to... Streetcar Named Desire, which is still a play, and when you see the film, it's still a play. Bonnie and Clyde n- never is a script. It's never a screenplay. It's only a movie. And, and that was the beginning of that notion, and it's true of the new wave as well, which is it, if you take the dialogue of A Man and a Woman or Woman in the Dunes or you know Breathless or any of those films, it probably is like four pages. And it, it, is, it isn't about the dialogue. It's about the relationship, and it's about the, in, the interconnections, and it's about the style of movie making. You remember 
Godard did the thing of a, a, it was a dialogue scene between two characters, and all he did was move the camera from one to the other. It was like a pendulum. It went back and forth. Obviously, very well structured because you were on the person who was talking most of the time. But the convention would have been cut to cut to cut to cut. That would have been easier. No. And when you're watching the movie, you're watching a movie. It says, this is a movie. This is not a story. This is a story in a movie. So the, the screenplay was only as important as the movie was. And I think that's what the French New Wave was doing. The Japanese were doing it, too, and Kurosawa was doing it, and, and of course, Ingmar Berkman. Well, Hitchcock talked about that, too. Once he wrote the script, he felt like the movie was done. Yeah, he just, he just right. All he did is execute Shooting it was an afterthought. That's right. In any case, it wasn't that important, and I'm sure he had it in his head, fine, that's fine, that's fine. Do this, do this, do this, and do this. Bonnie and Clyde is a very structured story and a very full story. But it became like Hustler, Hustler after, not a particularly interesting story, but, a, but an extraordinary movie. And why? Because it was, about, it was about those textures, and it was about, it was a movie. And I think that's when movies became not just filmed plays, not just filmed scripts, but, but the script became a film. It, it's what's wrong with the big film today, which is all the same. It's all about the explosion. It's all about the superhero. It isn't. It, you don't have to. You don't have to work. All you actually have to do is sit back and be quiet. But you're not part of that. You're simply a spectator. And there are many films still that that you're that you're part of, to be sure. But with the new wave and with Benton especially, it drew you in. You did not have a choice. You started leaning back in your chair and you discover at the end of the film you're on the, you're on the edge. Mm -hmm. and, then, and you didn't know that that was happening. And losing that is what the writer and the director and the editor can do. And, and Benton was part of that. And that's kind of what the, the new wave did. It was, it was about the poetry. And I think that has to do with the importance of understanding what it is that you're after and also not leaving it to someone else to screw it up. And, and that's a very important thing as well with a lot of writers who get very angry that when they see the film. And you know that they're never invited. They get invited to the premiere. And in between, they're, they're persona non grata. And it, it doesn't make any sense. The writer's always got to be there. Anyway, that's Benton. Robert Benton's Places in the Heart tapped into Benton's childhood upbringing in Texas. It was the first film that both Tom and Michael worked on with Benton, and they described the process of how it came together. The first film that I worked with Benton on was Places in the Heart, and I think that was about 1982, something like that. It was like a very small film, and I was really green. I, I had only had a, a few jobs at that point mixing. Uh, I'd been maybe mixing for two or three years. So for me, it was a real big opportunity to work on this film, and it was Carol Littleton was the editor, and, uh, you know, she had done E.T., and... And I was, you know, kind of in awe of her. And 
they brought in this beautiful little film with new actors. You know, John Malkovich was new. Danny Glover was new. Ed Harris was new. It was all there very early in all of our careers. And and my mother had worked with Benton on Bonnie and Clyde. He was one of the writers. And so she knew him from there. And I had never met him before, but I remember him coming to the stage, and he was just the most polite, soft-spoken, easygoing guy. One of the real uh, sweethearts that I can remember working with. And it was a real pleasure. The film was beautiful. It was very spiritual. Great performances. Sally Field. So, yeah, I was. I was also the first time I went was places in the heart. I'd been working uh, in, in the film business at that point for about fourteen years. It was nineteen eighty four that it came out. So I guess about thirteen, fourteen years. I was in the business. I became um, an ADR editor somewhere around eighty two, and uh, I got asked to work on places in the heart. And the first thing they said was, uh, because it was called the Texas Project at the time. It didn't have a title. And so we referred to it as the Texas Project. And we knew it was very close to Benton's heart. What they told me when I started, they said almost 80% of the film had to be looped because of the Texas winds. And so I thought that that was a bit bit of a challenge because usually when you loop uh, anything beyond a line or two in a scene, it kind of takes a, a, a dip. You know, the energy of the scene may take a dip. We had two incidents in the ADR studio. One was Ed Harris during a love scene where everything had to be ADR'd and and done over again was very method and visceral in his performance and he would actually sort of get close to the mic and move his shoulders and and he was wearing a leather jacket so I said to him I'm sorry we have to take the leather jacket off because that's all we heard we could hardly hear his voice which we got him down to a t-shirt and I looked at him at one point even with his t-shirt on I was saying, for playbacks, is this going to work? And he was going, well, yes, it's going to work. But, you know, we hear the rustle. And Tommy claims he doesn't remember this. But if you watch the film to this day, if you see that love scene, you're going to think that the sheets are starched because it's just rustle, rustle, rustle. But the other incident was really interesting because, first of all, when I met John Malkovich, I was surprised he wasn't blind because he's just so convincing in his performance. But when Danny Glover came in to do his ADR, he came in with an acting coach. Um, her name was Sandra Lee. She played Tiger Lily in the original Peter Pan. And she was working as his acting coach. And there was a scene where Danny had to uh, break down and cry. And she worked him up, and she got him to cry. And we were going on cue, you know, beep, 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 record. And she started him crying, and the cue ended, the reel ended, the film was flapping in the projector, and Benton was going, let him go, let him go. We lost at least an hour, if not an hour and a half, because he was so uh, distraught by that moment. He, he got so deep into his crying that he couldn't really fully come back. And it was Benton respecting the humanity, I think, of the moment. And the performance and the fact that we had to loop 80% of that movie meant that he was there, you know, listening to every performance. And, you know, he's not there saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. He's saying, that's beautiful, you know, because he's hearing the enunciation of the words that, you know, were being brought to life. And, you know, my job basically at that point was to just make sure it looked like it was coming out of people's mouths. And they all made it easy. Everybody knew what they were doing. And, 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 and the respect for those elements was up front. It was, it, was, it was paramount. You know, when I look back on that film now, I don't hear the looping as much as 
I thought I would. And it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing from top to bottom when he was in charge. So. There was a, a, a major sequence in the film where they're picking the cotton, and, and there was some dialogue. Uh, it wasn't a lot of dialogue, but what there was was covered with cicadas. I mean, there was these, you know, summertime Texas cicadas. And that became a big part of the of the track. I mean, we actually integrated that that production track and augmented it with more to highlight the beating down of the sun. You know, we'd, you'd hear the, the cicadas rise and fall. And, and that was a very, you know, that was a very satisfying way of dealing with those kind of problems. Uh, was instead of trying to squish all of the life out of the dialogue by trying to, you know, get rid of the crickets, let the crickets play. We're out there in the field. It's being It's been justified by what we're seeing in the image. So, you know, maybe we can salvage some of these original recordings, you know, and, and he went with that. And that was good. I think that was a good decision. That just reminded me of an interesting thing that happened on Places in the Heart. This was the early 80s, and it was before the sophisticated kind of CGI effects, visual effects that we have now. And in the film, there's a tornado. And they wanted a shot of the tornado. And they hired this very expensive visual effects guy to create the tornado, and he didn't do it. He couldn't. He couldn't do it. I mean, they have a couple of shots of some clouds b boiling <laughs> around, and he was supposed to create a real tornado, and he couldn't do it. There was no tornado, and Carol Littleton was, you know, pulling her hair out, and and Benton just, you know, go cut around it, you know. And they played most of the scene inside the root cellar where the family was hiding, and you heard, you know, we did it with sound, with sound effects, a lot of wind and things banging around and stuff, and it worked fine, but. It was it was one of those moments where what are we going to do? We don't have a tornado. How are we going to play this? And somehow he just, him and Carol put it together in a way that it works, it plays. You get all of the necessary elements of the story without the shot of the tornado, but you still believe it. So, And it was great for me. I had, I had a, a really great time just sort of creating these sound effects with wind and notch filters and... <laughs> You know, and there was no, there was no automation on the console then, and you know it was everything was sort of like ad hoc, and we were flying stuff in, and it was just one of those memorable experiences from very early on in my career that I learned a lot from about how to tell story, even when you don't necessarily have all the material you need. Yeah, yeah I, I actually think that it. He, he did have the material he needed. They thought they needed that visual of the tornado. It turns out they actually didn't. That may have taken something away from what they ended up with, which was people fighting against the wind to get into that cellar, things flying across the camera, and then once we're down there, you're screaming, the yelling, the banging, and, you know, you knew it was a tornado without having, actually having to see the tornado, so it wasn't like a nail being hit by a hammer, and it just had a much better, subtler effect. And he was so easy going about it that I remember when they said, maybe we don't really need a tornado visual because I couldn't get it anyway. And and Carol, you know, really thought she wanted it, needed it. They tried real hard, but he was so calm and so cool about it. And I think they had a tornado. You have no question about what was going on, especially when they come out and there's devastation afterwards and they have to rebuild and clean up. 
It was it was obvious. And uh, even with all of the sort of low-key elements of his personality, he knew what he wanted, and he was articulate in explaining, to me at least, what he was going for. And I'm sure he was that way in the cutting room, too. This is Bob Ray Tano, and you're listening to Frame by Frame. Bob Ritano first met Robert Benton as the associate editor while working with picture editor Alan Heim on Billy Bathgate. I was working before I met him. That is, I was working on Billy Bathgate, and then I met him. Alan Heim was the editor on Billy Bathgate, and they needed second editor because they had a schedule problem when we were going down south and they were shooting in New York and they wanted to get, they were working towards a date. And at that time, I was known as the most cooperative associate editor. I didn't say anything to anybody and I had worked as an associate to for four other editors. So it was kind of like, if you need an associate, Bob's a good choice because he's not looking to take over. So I was hired, and I began working, and then I met Benton. Obviously, it was okayed through him, but I hadn't seen him before. And having worked with a lot of directors, I did a lot of television films and then features, by and large, with the exception, of course, of Arthur Penn and Sidney Lumet, most directors are really, really difficult people to be around, and especially in the cutting room, because... It's very hard for them to adapt from what they saw to what you're doing. And the thing that they don't understand is that essentially when the editor gives the first cut, most of the time the director is working from that as the base. You can't, except for Didi, you can't extraordinarily change what is there because you've also got time schedules at that point you would have t uh, 10 weeks between the end of shooting and delivery for previews to the studio. And when I met Benton, it was like he didn't fit the mold because he was soft-spoken, he was gentle, he was kind, and it just didn't make any sense. You, you, you sort of felt at some point he was going to pull a knife and this was going to be all over, that some, he was hiding something. And what you discovered after, of course, working with him is that that's the real guy. I thought a lot about how to discuss him and looking at his films. And there were two films that weren't an artistic success, not a financial success. And he will admit that. And one of them was Billy Bathgate, and the other was... The Human Stain, which was a novel by Philip Roth. And I think when Benton wrote it, when it came from inside, he understood it. But two years ago at a, um, a luncheon, I bumped into him, and I hadn't seen him in a long time. And we're talking, and as we're leaving, and he's, Benton I think is 85 now, so he was 83. And he said to me, I was the wrong director for that film. And I said, Bob, you know, how can you say that? But he was. And he knew it. 
And it was because the story wasn't his. That is, he couldn't understand what it was about. It was about gangsters. It was peculiar, and he never got it. And and I could feel it as I'm watching it. And then you watch Places in the Heart, and and you're swept. And you watch Kramer versus Kramer, and that's from a book, but he wrote the script. And you realize that Bob Benton is a writer who then directed. He was writer-director. There are some directors who write, but Benton was a writer who directed. And I think his connection to the words and to the characters was most important. And when it got to be bigger, when it got to be cosmic, I think that wasn't his strength. And I think those films didn't work. Working with him was the work like working with a friend. And you'd almost have to say, you know, I, I'd like to try something. And he would say, okay, do that. But you would need to instigate that. Because in his head, that scene was working. And for the editor, it was a matter of making it work better. That is, making it smoother, making it whatever, that you could get more out of it. And he would trust you to do that. The, other, the only other film that I worked with him on <clears throat> was Twilight, which is another long-forgotten movie with Paul Newman and Susan Sarandon and, and uh, Gene Hackman, James Garner. And it was this dark whodunit, murder mystery. Paul Newman played this detective. And it was like the opposite end of the spectrum from Places in the Heart. But still, it was the same kind of an experience. It was just smooth sailing. It was, it was come, to the, come to the mix, get, you know, everyone was working together. Everyone was enjoying each other contributions I mean without getting into too much analysis and psychoanalysis I mean he was born in 1932 so he was born during the depression and Texas must have been the Dust Bowl as well so it was less than a positive beginning and it must have affected his parents as well and to be critical for a moment because you're going into a very complicated person who seemed uncomplicated or didn't present himself as complicated or didn't expose it. I think that his niceness actually hurt him in many situations because he didn't demand it. Um, we'd be on the set and he would want something and he would ask for it and somebody would override him. Not, I mean, we had a remarkable cinematographer. It was Nesta Almandros who was actually dying when he was doing the film. And it was beautiful and all of that. But he, but, but Benton, and I think he used the producer to do this. Not Arlene, though. Mike Hausman, right? Well, how, yes. Hausman would be the heavy. He was the, right. he was the fist. And, right. and I think it would have been more effective if, if it had been him. I, I went yesterday and saw Dunkirk. And there was a luncheon after and Nolan is another one of these people who is very, 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 very soft-spoken and, and easygoing. But he is, must be, for considering the movies that he's made, demanding as can be, and absolutely rigid in those demands. And I think if Benton had been that, there were times when you wanted to shake him and say, Bob, we need that, you know, let's... And you can't, because the ed the editor can't do that, nobody but... The producer can do that. You do that in private anyway. And you knew this wasn't the momentary thing, that this was a matter of personality. On the smaller films that were perfectly crafted, didn't make any difference. On the ones that got into a little trouble, 
it was a problem. And, and I think he knew it. And that's, what he, that's when he said, uh, you know, I was the wrong director for that film. Because, because it needed to be perfect and it needed to be soulful. And it was neither of those things. And there were so many hands in it between Doctoro and Stoppard. And uh, all of these big personalities were working to this one end. And I think he got pushed aside and didn't have it in him to fight back. And he should have. You know, it's interesting. You, you remind me of when um, we were working on uh, what was ultimately called Night Moves. And there were a lot of people being asked, what do you think of? And the film was screened, and especially that lovemaking scene was screened. And a lot of people, you know, had a, a lot of opinions. And I think Arthur was kind of molding things. And Arthur and Dee were kind of like molding things based on all these opinions. And they kind of homogenized this little golden moment that they had down to you know, a nugget, and it was a shame. Yes, you're right. And, and, and that did happen, and he took them too seriously, and he lost his own focus in that. And, and that's a problem, which is... I think that happens to many, many directors. I've seen that happen to Marty Scorsese, for example. Really? Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, I think that happened on, on uh, Gangs in New York in one sequence, where, where he was listening to the, the critics... At the at the previews and and we kind of deconstructed the, the this climactic end scene with all of the you know the voices uh, the radio voices and the riots and the, you know intercutting between the two battles um, uh, that kind of there was a better version of that uh, I thought uh, before the preview screenings where he you know he had his friends were telling him that they you know weren't getting it. Really, I, yeah. I, I, it, yeah. the sense you get, and I, I don't know him. And I met, happened to I, Warren Beatty on Reds too, with uh, with the factory scene, the famous, you know, story of the factory scene and Elaine May just not uh, kept saying no. That the temp mix was better, you know. That really, yeah. And eventually on Reds, the temp mix was what went into the movie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Is that so? Yes. Really? Yes. <laughs> But they had hired Russian actors to, you know, recreate the crowd scenes, and you know everything was written in Russian, and was because the the extras were all Finnish and weren't speaking real Russian, so Warren wanted it to be authentic, you know. And we had they, Marie Shell had put together this whole crew, and they'd done all this ADR, and in the end, you know, they took it to a screening with Elaine May, and and she, yeah, that's really great, but the, you know the scratch mix was better. We had done the scratch mix like a year earlier, with crowd loops and we couldn't recreate it and in the end you know we got down to the end of the schedule and there was no time and it eventually just transferred the the, the scratch mix into wow. the, into the into the reel and Beatty is a tough is a tough yeah. is a very commanding presence yeah. he's not easy so you're right i think yeah. there's they asked and then i'm only bringing this up because it was there was such a similarity between Nolan and Benton in terms of they both write, they both direct, they're both kind people, and they both make extremely good movies. And, and that's the film he made, interestingly, is a very small film. It costs $200 million, but it is a small film. But in the discussion that followed, he said the screenplay he wrote was not about Dunkirk. It was about these people the Brits and who they were and how they acted. And I, I think Benton works exactly that same way, which is it's never about the, the bigger subject. It's always about the heart 
and you love him for that. I mean, there, you will never meet a person who says, Benton, are you kidding? It's never a negative word, and I don't think people are being polite. I think it's really the truth. Interestingly, one of Nora Ephron's mentors was Benton. She would send things to him. He was sort of the quiet presence behind. And when she had a, a problem, Benton was the guy that she went to. So this is a, you know, a pretty good writer. And who did she go to? She went to the man with the soul. And he must have been good at it because she kept going back. So that's when we were looking for a title for Places in the Heart. And that was his title that he liked pretty much from the beginning. But he asked everybody for, you know, what they thought, you know, of that or what else they thought the film should be called. And I didn't think that was the best choice, but it it was the one they ended up with. I mean, it was the one that meant most the most to him. It seemed weak at the time, but now it seems like a classic title. When I do ADR with actors, usually their first impression, their first take is like their instinct, you know, before we get into the, any of the nuances of what the performance should be or what it is. But it's, there's something to be said for that instinct, that, you know, the first thought that comes to mind should be respected um, because it comes from the heart, yeah. you know, which is probably where Benton might have come up with that. Places in the heart is what happens in real life the first time, you know, the tornado, the the husband getting shot, the um, the first, the funeral, you know, it's like, that's like, that's all raw. That's all new. It's all, you know, you don't, you don't rehearse that stuff. It just, you know, when it happens, your heart's the first thing to respond. The sound engineer for this episode was Kristen Catuno. The mixer was Dionysus Vlakos. Frame by Frame is produced by Isabel Saderni and Ben Baker. The music credits for this episode include Cliff Bruner's A Golden Waltz from Places in the Heart and John Williams' End Theme from Superman. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Frame by Frame with the collaborators of David Mamet. Mm-hmm.